Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. And this morning, the first thing you're probably wondering is, why is Jason wearing a t-shirt? Well, I'm wearing my Jesus in my place t-shirt because of what's going to happen this evening. There are going to be dozens of people wearing this exact same t-shirt who are expressing their faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. It's going to be so exciting. And there may be some of you watching this who need to be a part of this baptism celebration. But I'll get to that a little bit more in the future. But for now, I want to, I want to dig into God's word because I think God wants to prepare our hearts for work he wants to do in us. But, but I got to start with a question. So here's my question for you. Do you struggle with trust issues? I mean, did any of you just, do you find it hard to trust other people? Because if you do, I know where it came from. You've been burned before. There's been somebody that you trusted, you put your trust in, and then they just somehow burned you for it. Maybe they turned their back on you. Maybe they lied to you. Maybe they even used what you told them against you later on. Whatever happened, they burned you, and you've been scarred by it. And you've just decided if somebody is going to be worthy of trust, they're going to have to build that trust up first because you're not going to trust anybody. What's so interesting is that our trust issues can happen before we even know what trust issues are. I remember the first time my trust was broken. It may have happened before, but the first one I can remember was in junior high. So here's my, my sad little story. So I, I was an awkward kid growing up, kind of a late bloomer, you know, and I don't know. I, just, I had every rugged thing you could think of. And, and in junior high, I'm going to that awkward stage, but it's the first time that I'm willing to tell somebody else that I like a girl. Now, I was so shy, I would never tell anybody beforehand because I didn't want the girl to find out and find out she didn't like me back, so I kept it to myself. But in junior high, I had a friend who was spending the night, and we were just talking about girls late one night, and I had the guts to tell him, yeah, there's a girl in school that I like. Kind of finally got to get it off my chest, felt so proud of myself to have this good friend here I could share it with. Had no clue that on Monday when we walked around the halls of the school, the whole school would know about it, including the girl I liked which ticked me off, not least of which because I found out she didn't like me back. But what really ticked me off is my friend, who I thought was my friend, had just spread this. I hadn't told anybody else. The only way it got out was this friend of mine who blabbed my little secret. And I was ticked. How could he stab me in the back? And, And I learned this really terrible lesson that day in junior high. I learned that I just can't trust anybody. I'm going to have to guard my heart and keep myself distance from everybody else around me. Listen, guys, that's a terrible lesson. You don't want to learn this lesson because you can't have good, close, intimate friendships if you're always sealing off your heart and keeping people at arm's length away. But that's what my tender little heart learned that day. I got to seal my heart off. I can't get too close because people are going to burn me. And I learned that if anybody was going to be trustworthy, they were going to have to prove just how trustworthy they they were first. The, The burden of proof was on them, not on me. That's what happens when your soul gets scarred that way. I know there are many of you watching, you can relate. In fact, there's some of you going, Jason, if that's your worst problem, you don't even know what it means to be burned. You should hear my story. And I get it. We all have different levels of where we've been burned and where our trust has been uh, taken and abused and broken. And, but the, the common denominator between all of us as we think through this is that we have a great danger of taking our trust issues, our lack of trusting people, and projecting that upon God where we actually demand proof from God to to show that he's trustworthy before we trust in him. We put the burden of proof on him. We think that God's going to let us down just like everybody else around us has let us down. And so we say, God, I'm not going to trust you until you prove that you're trustworthy. Now, let me tell you the great problem with that. 
The great problem with that is we end up treating God like he's some dude that we're trying to decide if he's trustworthy or not, not realizing he is the creator of the universe who breathed life into us. So I, I think we have our wrong perspective of God that needs to be tweaked a little bit this morning, corrected, if you will. So let me go ahead and, and make it as clear as I can. Here's the deal. God loves you. God is for you. God gave up his own son to die on a cross to save you from your sins. God has proven that he is trustworthy. You can trust God because he's the very definition of trustworthy. But make no mistake about it. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't have to prove to you that he's trustworthy. He's already proven that before. God doesn't have to bend to your will in order to show that you should trust him. God is worthy of trust. See, part of our problem is we think, God, in order for me to trust you, you need to bless me, you need to prove that you're trustworthy, then I'll trust you. But the Bible tells us, no, we trust God first, then we experience his blessings. Not we get his blessings, then we trust him. We have the order wrong. And until we flip that order, we're never going to understand what faith is. This morning, we're going to hear a story from Joseph, and it's a crazy story of when he starts interpreting dreams, and you're going to see this finally be flipped to understand what real faith is supposed to look like. It's going to be in Genesis chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 40, we're going to cover two chapters. There's going to be a whole bunch of reading this morning, but it's an incredible story. I think you'll stay with me, and we'll walk through it bit by bit. But before we jump into this, let me go ahead and catch you up to where we are. So a few weeks ago, we started this sermon series called Living the Dream. We heard about Joseph as he had two dreams that his brothers one day would bow down to him. And that started off this, this whole jealousy feud. His brothers tried to kill him and then decided instead to sell him into slavery. And he went off to Egypt. Last week, we heard what happened in Egypt. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife accused him of, of propositioning her when, in fact, she was the one who propositioned him. But it didn't matter. Even though he was in the right, he still got thrown in jail. And last week ended with Joseph in jail, wondering when God was going to show up. This week, we get to hear what it looks like when God actually shows up. So start with me, Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now stop there just for a second. So I want to set the story up. We're going to read the rest of it in larger chunks, but I'm afraid if you don't understand who the cupbearer and the baker are, you won't get the story. So they don't sound like very important positions, but in the court of Pharaoh in Egypt, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker were exceptionally important offices, mainly because their role was to protect the life of the most important person in the land of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Their job was to ensure, they were like the security detail, to ensure that Pharaoh didn't get assassinated. Because if someone was going to try to assassinate the Pharaoh, they were going to do it through what he drank or what he ate. Now, the only way to get appointed to the position of chief cupbearer and chief baker was to show supreme loyalty to the Pharaoh. So these people were high officials. They got to work day in and day out with the most important person in the land of Egypt when Egypt was the, probably the strongest country in the world. So this is the most important person in the world, and these guys are right there next to him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why they got thrown into prison, but I've, I've heard some pretty good uh, speculations from historians. And the, the one I heard that I thought was the best was more than likely, Pharaoh had sat down for a meal and had gotten exceptionally sick from the meal as if someone was trying to poison him. But they didn't know if it came through what he drank or what he ate. And therefore, both the cupbearer and the baker were thrown into prison until they found out what went wrong. Now, I don't know if that's really what happened, but that makes a lot of sense to me, especially because of what happens later. 
But for whatever reason, they're in prison and they meet up with Joseph. And that's where Joseph enters the story. Okay, so now with that floating around your head, let's keep moving on in verse 5. It says, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is his interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now stop there. Okay, so here you have Joseph coming in. The cupbearer tells him his dream, and Joseph interprets it beautifully, perfectly. You're going to discover in a little bit. It was down to every last detail exactly as he said. The Spirit of God had come upon Joseph and revealed to him exactly what the dream meant. Now Joseph, as he interprets this dream, moved by the Spirit of God, he's convinced this is his ticket out. So he says, cupbearer, listen, when all this takes place, when I know it's going to take place, don't forget me. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this place because I don't deserve to be here in prison. He was hoping that this would be his way out because in his mind, this is the perfect time to get out whenever he could show the power that God had given him. But what we're about to discover is though that made perfect sense to Joseph, it's still not what God did because God doesn't do what makes sense to us. He does what makes sense to him. That's why faith is so important in our relationship with God. So let's see what happens next as we keep going in the story. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. And there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay, so it says it works out exactly as Joseph had detailed, every last bit of it. Cupbearer is restored, baker is hanged, he's, he's killed by Pharaoh, all as he said, and now Joseph goes, now's my time, cupbearer, come get me out. And the cupbearer completely forgets all about Joseph. What you're going to discover in the next verse is he forgets for two whole years. And here's Joseph sitting in a jail cell, rotting away, just waiting for cupbearer to remember. I think sometimes we read stories like this and we forget the emotions that people feel. We just move on. Don't, don't think at all about how Joseph might have felt. But just stop and think about this for a moment. Here's Joseph, and he's been nothing but faithful to God. I mean, here he is now. He's been faithfully interpreting the dreams just as God has revealed to him, boldly declaring what's going to take place. And for two whole years, utterly forgotten. 
He's already been in prison for some six to eight years because of what happened with Potiphar's wife, even though he was above reproach. He had said, I will not be with you. And yet still with that, he gets falsely accused and thrown into prison. Nothing is going his way. I mean, you got to know at this point, he's probably going, God, where are you? I mean, I want to trust you, God, but I just don't know how I can trust you if things keep going south like this, if nothing ever works out. I don't know if that's what Joseph was feeling, but you know, you and I, couldn't you imagine feeling that same way? In fact, I'll bet you there are some of you watching this right now. That's exactly how you feel. Maybe you're in the middle of some kind of crisis right now, something that's been going on for a long time, and and God's just not bringing any resolution. He's not bringing healing. He's not bringing the, the money that you need. He's not restoring that relationship. He's not working things out, and you're going, God, how can I trust you when you can't even handle this in my life? It's a real honest feeling that we have. But I think it's a feeling that, that betrays the fact that you and I have wrong views of how faith is supposed to work. Maybe you can think of it this way. So I'm going to come into the whiteboard and get a little, little teachy on you here. But I think every single one of us affects and approaches faith with a certain cycle of faith, if you will. So maybe think of it this way. So imagine it all starts with a crisis because ultimately all of our issues of faith And the biggest things in life happen with crisis. I'm amazed. It's true for all of human nature. People who don't think about God at all, don't ever pray, don't do anything. But the moment there's a crisis, they get all spiritual and they start praying and start asking for help because they know they need a power beyond them. So it starts with crisis. And crisis almost always will lead to prayer of some sort. Like I said, even people who aren't very religious will start praying. But what they pray is really important. The vast majority of the time when they pray... They are praying, asking God for blessing, saying, all right, God, I need you to move in my life. Here's my crisis. So I'm praying, asking you to solve this crisis, to meet this need, to handle this problem, to right this wrong. I want, I want blessing from you, God. That's what I'm praying for. And we think that if God will come through and God will bless us, then that will build our trust. I mean, right? We're going to trust God. He's, he's come through. He delivered. He showed his power. I trust him now. And we think that once we trust him because he's proven himself, well, we'll have more faith for the next crisis. We'll learn to pray with greater faith. We'll see God bless us more, so we'll trust him more. And, and we think this is the way the cycle of faith works. Now, let me tell you where this cycle of faith is flawed. It's, it's right here in blessing. The onus of proof, the burden of proof in this one rests on God, not on us, right? We're going to trust him if he meets our need, if he solves our problem, if he provides for us. Now, here's the problem with that. If God doesn't do what we want, then we spiral out to this place called unbelief. There's a fork in the road now based on God doing what we want him to do. So this gets derailed the moment God doesn't do what we want him to do. And like I said before, we don't make demands on God. God doesn't owe us anything. But when our trust on, in God is hinging upon blessing, then we're going to spiral out of this problem. That's the, the way the vast majority of us think about faith. And honestly, that's the way, if Joseph had thought this way, he would end in unbelief because it would have been taking place in his life. But what you're going to discover is that Joseph wasn't on this cycle of faith. He was on something different. We got to get back to the story that I really discover it. So go back, keep on reading. In, in chapter 41, we'll move through and see what happens next. Verse one. 
After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I love Joseph's response. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile and seven cows, plump, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass and seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, as such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Well, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven ears, empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and let him set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseas over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now stop there. Okay, so a lot of scripture, big story, but it's a pretty easy concept. Now Pharaoh has a dream and Joseph comes before it and interprets that dream. Now here's what's so interesting. I love the way Joseph stands up in front of Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is the mightiest man in the whole land of Egypt, maybe the mightiest man in the world. And here's this guy, Joseph, just a few hours before He's this scruffy-looking ex-slave convict who's rotting away in a jail cell. He gets out, shaves, changes his clothes, and he's standing before the mightiest man in Egypt telling him exactly without any doubt what's going to happen, what his dream means. Now, here's what's interesting. 
This was actually a pretty crazy interpretation of the dream because of the whole seven years of famine, because Egypt was not known to have years of famine. Now, the rest of the, the Middle Eastern world, what we know today is that Middle East is very prone to have famine because of, of their dependency upon the annual rains, which if they don't come, it creates drought and famine. But Egypt wasn't like that. Egypt had the Nile. The Nile was like clockwork. Every year, it would overflow its banks, and that's how they would irrigate the land of Egypt. It rarely failed and never failed seven years in a row. So this interpretation was a crazy interpretation, but he says it boldly. Like, it is a fact, Pharaoh. God is telling you it's going to happen, so go ahead and get ready for it. But even more than that, I love the audacity that, Pharaoh, that, that Joseph has before Pharaoh because he tells Pharaoh, this ex-slave, now convict who's just been shaved and put in front of Pharaoh, is telling Pharaoh how to run his own country. He says, Pharaoh, here's what you got to do. You need to go out, you need to build a whole bunch of really huge barns in all your major cities. Then you need to tax the people 20% of all they earn. Now, I don't know if you're a politician or not, but raising taxes by 20% will not be beloved by your people. This was terrible advice for Pharaoh to tax the people 20%, but it's what he tells Pharaoh to do. Collect 20% of all the grain that the people bring in and collect it for yourself and then he says, here's how you're going to have to staff it. You're going to have to get overseers in each one of the city and then select somebody who can be wise enough to lead the whole deal. You've got to do all that stuff, Pharaoh. That's the plan. Now listen, this was crazy for him to do this because for him to be so bold to stand in front of him and make these demands meant that if he was wrong at any point, if he made any kind of major mistake, ticked off Pharaoh, Pharaoh would kill him in a heartbeat. He'd already killed the baker. We know it was in him. This was a bold move. You're seeing incredible faith from Joseph. But what I think is the most faithful in this whole story is the way he talks about his God. Remember, his God is a foreign God. He's from the land of Canaan. His God is Elohim, a God that the Egyptians didn't know. They had their own set of gods, the sun God and moon God and all those people. They didn't have the same gods as he had. But Joseph says, my God is the one who can interpret it. Joseph looks at Pharaoh and says, my God is telling you what he's about to do. My God is about to take control of your land and he's letting you in on it so that you won't be overtaken by it. He has the audacity to speak about his God that way. And what makes that so incredible is how little that God had done for Joseph up to this point in the story. I mean, if you know the ending of the story, it doesn't sound that great, but you gotta think about what's going on in Joseph's life right now. At this point, God has done nothing for Joseph. Whenever Joseph lived for God, he was moral, would not be with Potiphar's wife, stood against that. What was his reward? Prison for six to eight years. When he was interpreting dreams, being faithful before the cupbearer, before the baker, telling him exactly what was going to happen, boldly serving his God because God had revealed to him what was going on, you know what his reward was? Two more years in jail. He had been given a dream 13 years before when he was 17 years old that he was going to be so important his brother's going to bow down to him. Now here he is 13 years later and not only has that not happened, he's about as far away from that ever happening as possible as he's rotting away in prison. God hadn't done anything for him yet and yet he still has the audacity to say this is what my God is doing. He still has faith in God which I think you stop and go, how? How could Joseph have so much faith in this God who'd done nothing for him yet? And I think the answer to that is realizing that Joseph was on a different cycle of faith. So you come back over here to this board 
and you look back at this one, and if, if Joseph had been right here on this one, you know, crisis, I'm in jail, pray, God, get me out of jail, but that didn't happen, he would have come here to unbelief, not to maintain his belief in God because he wouldn't have trusted. So apparently Joseph was not on this cycle of faith. He was on something different. So here's what Joseph was on. It started in the same place. It's actually a very similar cycle, but there's a small nuance change that changes everything. So he's in a crisis. He needs God. It doesn't tell us that he's a man of prayer, but you cannot be attuned to the Spirit of God and interpret dreams if you're not communing with God. So he's a man of prayer. He's communing with the Spirit. That's how he's finding out what these dreams mean. That's why he says, it's not me. God's going to interpret them. He's praying. But the real key is what he's praying for. He is not praying for blessing. He's praying for trust. Because he knows he's about to stand before the Pharaoh, the mightiest man in the whole country, and tell him a whole bunch of crazy things that are going to happen, tell him how to run his country, and he's not going to ask for anything. He's not asking for blessing. He's not saying, get me out of prison, put me in charge. He didn't, he didn't ask for anything. He's just saying, God, give me the trust to believe that I can stand before Pharaoh and tell him what you're doing. That's all he prays for is trust, not blessing. But I want you to hear in the story what happens when somebody actually decides to ask God to give us the faith to trust him. Because great things happen. Let's get back to the story. And we're going to finish it up starting in verse 37 of chapter 41. Here's what it says. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Even Pharaoh can see the spirit of God in Joseph. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, name Zaphonath Paniah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through, through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And these seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, you guys go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was, was severe over all the earth. I stop there. So at the end of the day, Pharaoh says to him, hey man, I see the spirit of God in you. I want you to be in charge of everything. 
He didn't ask to be in charge. He didn't say, put me in, coach. I can do this. He just said, here's what God's going to do. He walked in faith. But when he walked in faith, there was this incredible result that happened. The result was blessing. God blessed him because of his faith. And because he saw this blessing, which was abundantly beyond what he could have ever even imagined, way better than just getting out of jail, he saw God move and that built his faith for the next crisis because in the next chapter, what's going to happen is Joseph is going to have to reunite with his brothers that sold him into slavery 13 years before. But because he trusted in God, he experienced a blessing that was going to give him even more faith so he'd pray for more trust and he would go on this cycle. Now let me tell you why this is so important. Because it's based on trust, no matter what God does, you're going to trust him. That's when you discover blessing. Not over here when you, you, God has to do what you want because if he doesn't, you go to unbelief. The reason why Joseph could trust God was because he started with trust. He didn't need the blessing first. Now, I know these seem really simple, but these two are just flipped, trust and blessing, yet that changes everything. Because remember, in this scenario, God has to prove he's trustworthy to you before you trust him. In this scenario, God has already proven he's trustworthy. Therefore, you trust him until you experience his blessing. The order of this is so incredibly important. So what I said at the very beginning, God does not have to bless you for you to trust him. He's already earned your trust. You have to trust him in order to experience his blessing. This is the right order of faith. But let me tell you why this gets hard. It gets hard because this move from trust to blessing doesn't always go the way we want it to go, nor does it happen in the timing that we want it to happen. Make no mistake about it. Don't miss this. This blessing is not how you determine. It's how God determines. And the timing of that blessing isn't how you determine. It's how God determines. I mean, think about that for a second. I, mean, I think if you go back to the story just for a little bit, what you discover is there's a really crazy reality to the way this worked out for Joseph. So he trusts in God. But think about how this worked out for him. He did not get what he wanted. He told cupbearer what he wanted. I want to get out of this prison. I don't deserve to be here. So get me out. That's what he wanted. And if God had given him what he wanted, think about the implications of that. Joseph would have been set free by cupbearer, finally would have been out of prison. But let me guarantee you what would not have happened. Joseph would not have stuck around Egypt. His whole 13 years in Egypt had been horrible. He'd only been either a slave or a prisoner. His Egypt had not been good to Joseph. If he had been made free, I guarantee you he would have bolted. Maybe he would have gone home back to Canaan to be with his family. Maybe not. Maybe he would have gone somewhere else. But I know he wouldn't have stayed in Egypt. Now think about the implications of that. Two years later, Pharaoh was going to have these dreams. And Pharaoh was going to tell him to the cupbearer, who was by his side because that was his job, and the cupbearer would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know a guy who can interpret dreams, but I freed him two years ago. I have no clue where he's at. And Joseph would have been nowhere to be found in order to interpret Pharaoh's dream to get the true deepest blessing that God had for him. In other words, God's greatest blessing for Joseph was not getting him out of prison like he wanted. It was leaving him there for two more years so he could get him a deeper blessing. Let me tell you what that shows me. God defines blessing because God knows how to bless us when we don't even know what we really need we got to trust his ability to bless us. But probably the hardest part of this is the realization that this little arrow right here, it seems so close to the other one, but sometimes that arrow 
is a long, long time before it ever happens. Sometimes you trust God for years and years and years before you ever experience a blessing. Sometimes you trust God your entire life before you experience a blessing in heaven. There is no guarantee this is going to be quick. And the moment we say, God, I trusted you, where's my blessing? No, we're, we're back over here thinking that if I, if God, if I trust God, you know, he's going to bless me, then I'll trust him some more. No, that's not how it works. We trust God right now, and he blesses when he thinks it's worth it. I mean, I mean go back to the story just for a second. Think about Joseph. Joseph has said, I'm going to serve you, God. I'm going to be a man of, of above reproach. I'm not going to be with Potiphar's wife. Six to eight years, somewhere between that time frame, six to eight years, he's rotting away in prison. And then he has a whole cupbearer thing, two more years, he's rotting away in prison. That is a long time between trust and blessing. Thirteen years, he's waiting for the fulfillment to where his brothers would bow down to him. Waiting and waiting and waiting. But because his relationship with God is built upon trust first, he's willing to wait as long as it takes until the blessing comes. That's how faith is supposed to work. So let me bring this back to you right now. I know some of you are watching this and you're going to the middle of a crisis and you're struggling to trust in God because God's not doing what you want him to do and he's not doing it in the timing you want him to do it. And the question is, will you take your eyes off the other cycle? Remember, go, go back to that first cycle. There's so many of us are on this cycle where we're praying, trying to tell God how he should bless us trying to tell him when he should bless us. And we're trying to convince God that we know what's right. And when he doesn't do what we want, we're spiraling off into unbelief. Are we willing to give up this false cycle and come over here and say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. I'm going to begin with trust. I'm going to pray for the trust to come. That's the real difference between these two. The difference is what you pray between these two. Your prayer changes. This prayer is God bless me. This prayer is, God, give me the faith to trust you. Those are two totally different prayers. And my question is, are you willing to pray, not God solve all my problems. God, give me the faith to trust you right in the middle of my problems. That's a vastly different kind of prayer. But listen, God's already proven to you he's trustworthy. Just go back to the gospel of Jesus I mean, what kind of God would love you enough that while you were sinning, while you were rebelling against God, while you were racking up the wrath of God to come against you, would send his own son to live the sinless life you couldn't live so that he could absorb the wrath of God so that you didn't have to? What kind of God would do that when you and I didn't deserve it? You want to know what kind of God? A loving God, a good God who wants good for his children. Because God knows how to bless us. And he knows the greatest blessing of all is eternal life. And he wants us to have it. The question is, are we willing to trust him? Listen, I know there are many of you watching this and you're believers. You believe in the gospel of Jesus, but right now you're struggling because you're trying to convince God to do what you think is best in your life. And there must come a moment when you say, God, I'm going to open this up. I'm going to lay this burden down at your feet and I'm going to stop trying to convince you to do what I think is best, God. Now, it's not wrong to pray, to ask God to move. We see that in Joseph. He asked to be let out of, of prison. He wanted to be out. But you'll notice his faith was not contingent upon God doing what he wanted. And I think that's the difference. We've got to stop making our faith contingent on God answering our prayer the way we want it answered and start saying, God, give me the faith to trust you even when you don't answer it, even before resolution comes. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. 
And when we take the Lord's Supper, it is going to be all the reminder we need that God is trustworthy. And we're going to be able to open our hands to him. And whatever that issue is that we're struggling to trust God, and we can lay it at his feet and say, God, I trust you. Give me the faith to trust you. We're going to change our prayer before we take the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you to get your heart ready. You may need to spend some time on your knees, spend some time sitting down saying, God, here's my issue. Here's my crisis. I'm changing my prayer today. God, I'm going to choose to trust you. I want to encourage you to take that time in preparation. But but before we do, I, I want to say this. There are some of you watching this right now, and you are about to miss one of the greatest opportunities of your life because you're on the wrong cycle of faith. You're, you're going to miss this evening when we have our baptism celebration. This is the last call. This is the last chance for you to say on this particular baptism celebration, I want to be there. I want to put on my shirt that I believe Jesus died in my place. I'm ready to place my faith in him. And you're going to miss it because you're on the wrong cycle of faith. You're still over here and you're thinking, okay, I know I'm in a crisis and I'm praying, God, if you'll just bless me, God, if you'll just solve my problem, solve my issue, then I'll trust you enough to be baptized then I'll trust you enough to express my faith in you. That's not how it works. No, this is a cycle we need to be on where we say, okay, in the middle of my crisis, my prayer is, God, not solve my problems. God, give me the faith to trust you. And maybe what you need to do right now is to take that step of faith and say, God, I'm going to declare my faith in you, my faith in Christ Jesus through baptism before I ever see the blessing because I know that trust is the way that, that ensures blessing comes, however God defines that blessing. And maybe what you need to do is to be willing to say, God, this is my declaration of faith, my line in the sand that I'm going to step over. God, I'm going to declare that you're going to be my king. I repent of my sins. And baptism is that picture of you going into the water, dead and buried, the old you gone, a brand new you coming out with new life, declaring faith in the Savior who can take away the sins of the world. Are you ready to say, I trust you first, even before I get answers, even before I get resolution, even before I experience blessing, I trust you now. Listen, if that's you, then I want you to know you can still be a part of the baptism celebration this evening. We actually have pastors who are on the standby right now ready to communicate with you. Here's how you let us know. You can just go to the website, fielder.org slash next step. There's a really quick form you can fill out or if you'd rather get directly with your phone, just text the word next step right there. You see it on your screen to the number 94253. And it takes you to a really quick form. And that form is very simple. You just tell us what campus you normally attend. If you only attend online, you can indicate that. Then there's a little place where you check, I want to be baptized. Or maybe that you want to talk with a pastor. And then you just give us name, phone number, email address, and that's it. It's done. And within one hour, you will get a call from one of our pastors. And they're going to talk to you, make sure you understand the gospel. And if you're ready for baptism, then you can be there this evening on our baptism celebration. And you can get the shirt, you can have the expression of faith, and you can say, God, I choose to trust you. It's not too late, but you got to act now. So I want to encourage you. Text the word next step to 94253 or go to fielder.org slash next step. Fill out the brief form. Take the call from one of the pastors. Be a part of this, but declare your faith in Christ now because faith comes first. Listen, I, I know there are others of you watching this. You've already made that faith step, but now's the time to say, God, I've let that slip. I've let other things come up and demand my attention. I've started to believe I need answers before I can trust you, God, and forgive me for it. So as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, here's what I encourage you to do. There are things that you need to put down before the Lord and say, God, you don't have to prove your trustworthiness. I trust you. I give myself to you. Then you lay that at his feet and you worship him during this next song where we declare the Lord our God is good. 
and he takes care of us. Declare by faith, and when this song is over, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Now's the time. Get ready.